Thank you for downloading this message from Roots Community Church. We pray that you are encouraged by the word. If you're looking for more information, please visit us at rccphoenix.com. Today, what I want to do is I want to remind us of just who God is. At the very beginning of the faith series, we talked about there's a number of people who, who kind of passively go, oh, yeah, I believe in God. I have faith. And, it, and we talked about how that is not really the definition of faith. The faith is a conviction and a confidence that what I'm asking for um, and what I'm praying for and believing for is actually going to happen. And when I have and, and uh, it's important who I have faith in. And that person has to be God. And so I think when we talk about um, uh, things and we make general statements like, yeah, God is in control, everybody in here would probably nod your head and go, yeah, God's in control. But I think we, we, we lose track after a while. We lose track of exactly who God is. And today's entire message is going to be reminding us exactly who he is. And when we get done with it, uh, and once we uh, go through some of these passages and talk about it here together, I think that you should walk out of here with a renewed faith, not just that what you're believing for is going to happen, but in whom you're believing um, is, is the, the ultimate belief that you can absolutely have anywhere ever. And so <clears throat> there's a lot of passages of scripture that we could go to, um, but I like this one in Colossians 1, 15 through 20, these six verses, because it encapsulates um, God being in control very, very well. And so I'm going to read it out loud. You can follow along in your notes. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. <clears throat> Excuse me. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. He is the beginning, supreme over all who rise from the dead. So he is, it, he is first in everything. For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ, and through him God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood <clears throat> on the cross. There is so much in these six verses that can point us back to just how powerful, just how um, all-knowing, just how big God is. You're not going to be able to fathom it on your own. You're not going to be able to wrap your head around it entirely. But what I want you to do is to remember and have some memories in your head spark today when we go through what these six verses just said about God. There's eight things in these six verses that he just kind of went through that I want to I want to hit with to remind us of exactly who God is. And the statements made in that passage we just read in Colossians chapter one, <clears throat> the first and foremost is God made everything. Now, if you've been um, you've been in church for a long time, you've been a Christian for a long time and you can go, yes, he's the creator. I don't know exactly how he did it all, but he created all of this from nothing. I don't know what the process is, but he went through it and he created it. 
He didn't just make the trees, although he made the trees. He made the animals. He made the grass. He made the bushes. He made the sky. He made the sun. He made the stars. He made the wind. He made the rain. He made all of those things. Not only did he make those things, he made them so that they would sustain their own kind. Every living thing has a seed that in some way, shape, or form is deposited somewhere that that seed will grow and perpetuate the life cycle of what was created. He made sure there wasn't just one tree. He made sure that there were a bunch of them and they all had the ability to reproduce so that there will be trees 10, 20, 30, 50, a thousand years down the road because he has thought that far ahead about everything. He just didn't create the sun. He just didn't create the earth. He actually took the earth, tilted it on its axis at the correct degree point and spun it at the right speed and sent it and all the other planets into motion around the sun. He made sure that the oxygen and nitrogen level in the in the air was precisely fine-tuned and balanced so that human beings could breathe. He made us compatible with the environment so that we breathe out CO2 and breathe in oxygen and the plants breathe in the CO2 and breathe out oxygen. He has put all of this stuff in place. Not only did he create everything, not only did he create everybody, not only did he create every plant and animal and the dirt and the rocks and the mountains and every cavern that ever existed in the world, not only did he create those things, he created the laws that allow those things to operate. We call one of them the law of gravity, his idea, the law of physics, his idea, thermodynamics, his idea, all of these things that mankind is going, oh, look what we look what we've discovered. No, you didn't discover it. You're just catching up to understanding what God's genius plan was when he created the world. He put everything into into motion. He put the laws of physics into place. He made sure that the, that there was space to put matter, not just matter and then nowhere to put it. He made sure that he created time so that there will be a life cycle for, for life, for human beings, for everything that was created. He didn't just make everything that you see. He made every law that sustains everything that you see. He made sure every electron and neutron and proton was in the exact right place of the atom. He made sure that he put his signature on the human genome. He made sure your DNA and your fingerprint was unique to you so you could be identified in the billions of people that are already on this planet. He didn't just casually walk through and say, yeah, I'll make this and this. No, he was deliberate, creative, powerful. He made it all, all of it. Every last bit of it is his workmanship. David said in Psalms that, that you knit me together in my mother's womb. You are his creation. Cynics would look around and say, well, Matt, did God make your house? Nope. But he made all the materials and put them in a raw form and then made humanity curious enough with the ability to reason, the ability to, in, to, to have intellect, the, the ability to learn. So they would be curious enough to use those things to create everything that has been created. So he is the author, the first, the uncaused first cause for everything. We owe it all to him. He is God. That's what that means. 
They don't call him just king. He's the king of kings. They don't call him Lord. He's the Lord of lords because there are other uh, adversarial entities that, that this talked about in the unseen world that we can't see. He's not over just you. He's over them. And anything that exists in the universe, it is because he decided he wanted to make it. He is the one who's in control. And when you say, I have faith in God, that is the one that you got faith in. Sometimes I forget it when I get overwhelmed, when I get insecure, when I get fearful, when I get when I get upset, when I when I get distracted, I forget exactly who it is I'm having faith in. And God reminded me this week. He reminded me. The second thing, Jesus is supreme over all creation. That means there's nobody above him. There's nobody close to him. He is one of one, the alpha and omega beginning and the end. He is the one that sets parameters for who goes who, who goes on for eternity and who faces destruction. He's the one who set the parameters in place on who is going to be saved and who's not going to be saved. He didn't cause you to be saved. He gave you an opportunity. He set the rules into place. When Jesus, um, when he died on the cross, right before he rose again during those three days, he descended into Hades and he took the keys of death, hell, and the grave. We all say that like in the Carmen song, like the champion, you know, like all those human video days. Right. Some of you guys are like, what are you talking about? Don't worry. Don't Google it, please. <clears throat> um, you you hear about him taking the keys of death, hell and the grave. It means that he went down and said, you no longer have the ability to hold people who believe in me, my righteous children in this place anymore. I have come to set them free. I am the one who makes the rules from here going forward. You can't do anything about it. You like apples. How about them apples? He is supreme over everything. He created everything. The third, the third bullet point, he created everything that we see in the physical world and the things that we can't see in the spiritual world. Nothing that exists was created apart from him. Nothing. Nothing that exists was ever created or made outside of him. Have there been things that have been combined Together, elements that existed in, in nature that were raw elements that have been com uh, combined to create something, a new product. Yes, but they never created the new element. They only took what God had. Nothing that exists was created apart from him. <clears throat> he holds creation together. We talked about those laws that he put into place so everything would function precisely as he has intended it to. This is a big one, especially here at RCC. He is the leader of the church. He is the leader of the church. Not the most famous pastor on YouTube. Not the one who's got the most social media followers. Not the one who has the biggest uh, congregation that meets every week. Not the one with the biggest Easter attendance service. Not that. Those people, uh, we do not have one person. It doesn't matter if they're on the cover of Time magazine or some other magazine. If they're online, announces this is the, the leader of the Christian people in, the world, in, in America. No, that is not the leader. We have one leader. We are under shepherds who are stewarding you, his people, and I'm his person as well. So I got to go to him. I got to point him to you. And you need to beware of anyone who has any role in your life of a spiritual leader that points you to anything except for Jesus. <clears throat> there's no personal fulfillment. There is no, there's no selfish endeavor that can be paired with him. 
The ultimate supreme God doesn't need to be partnered with any other belief system. He doesn't need to work hand in hand with new age philosophy. He doesn't need to walk in lockstep with, with Hinduism. He doesn't need to blend so that it can be nicer for everybody. He doesn't need anything, including you, including me. He's self-sustained, but because he is overrun and he is the, the essence of love, he has chosen to give us a way to be saved. He has chosen to hold all this together. And that is the leader of the church, not a guy who's flawed, me at the top of the list, not a person who, who can lead you in some other direction. He is the leader of the church. He set the guidelines for eternal salvation and destruction. He is the one who set into motion how salvation would work. He's the one who determines all of that and says, if you will just believe in my son, if you will give your life to him, if you will confess with your mouth and believe that Jesus is the son of God, you will be saved. There is not a might or you got a nine out of 10 shot, you will be saved. And the last thing is something I still can't wrap my head around fully is God poured his wrath on his son by means of the cross so that those who believe in Jesus can be forgiven and reconciled to him. We hear a lot about God's love. We do not hear a lot about God's wrath. He poured judgment on his son and his son took it in your place. All of that was comprised in those six verses summarizing exactly who God really is. I want to give you a theological word, and I'll help you spell it here real quick. It's, it's the, the, the line in your notes. The, the, I think it's the first line here in your notes. God is sovereign. God is sovereign. S-O-V-E-R-E-I-G-N. God is sovereign. This is a kind of a theological word that you hear a lot of people, uh, you know, try to define in certain different ways and different, you know, offshoots of, uh, especially the reform guys, they really take this uh, distorted view of sovereignty that God is causing you to do everything you've done. You don't really have any free choices, basically all a simulation, basically, we're all on autopilot. This is completely wrong and anti-scriptural, but the way that I would I would define God's sovereignty is in this statement. It's the next line of your notes. Everything that happens in life has been caused or allowed by God. <clears throat> Everything that happens in life has been caused or allowed by God. <clears throat> now, most people in this room will go, amen, brother. Nothing happens outside of his purview. We get it. But you don't live in a world that amen brothers you when you say stuff like this. Most people, especially unbelievers, will look at this and go, wait, 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 wait. God allowed everything that happened in my life? And they will immediately go back to a very hurtful moment. They will go back to when someone betrayed them, maybe a pastor, like it was in my case. 
Maybe it was a parent, maybe it was a friend, maybe it was a neighbor. Maybe there was some, some unspeakable level of abuse that happened. I don't know what it is, but when you deal, especially with unbelievers, what they're going to say is like, wait a minute, God allowed that? And what the picture is, is that there's you about to be harmed in some way. And the person who's doing the harming and they're, they're, they're saying something or doing something that would cause you pain is outside of the door. And God's got their hand on the chest and be like, okay, I'll allow it. And then they walk in and, or they say something or they do something that causes you pain. How in the world do you answer a question when someone says, I have been wounded and you're telling me God's in control and he's the one who's allowed all of this stuff to happen? How in the world does he allow that to happen to me? It's a misunderstanding of that entire process. How does he allow it to happen? He set the parameters for every single person to choose him or to not. He has given you the ability to find him. You could look in all of creation and say, there's no way all this just appeared one day on its own. It didn't just, uh, just, uh, just come out of nothing over a long, long, long period of time. And something was created out of nothing that is ridiculous. He's the one who set the parameters in place for people to have a choice. Everybody wants everyone to be free to choose until somebody hurts them. Until somebody else chooses to use their free will to hurt them. In that moment, when you've been the one that's hurt, you immediately have a, a tendency to ask, why would God let that happen to me? This is what I get for going to church. This is what I get for being faithful to God all these years. This is what happens to, to people who are Christians and they follow all the rules. This is what happens to people of God? That God just allows them to be hurt? No. He allows you to choose. And the repercussions of that, if they're negative towards someone else, he can heal you and fix you and restore you and teach you that only he is the perfect father. Why? Why would he allow it? I want my freedom, but when someone else hurt me, I'm asking God, why would you let that happen? I want my freedom, but I want him to step in before something negative happens to me in my life, and I want him to stop it. In essence, I'm asking him to take away everybody else's personal freedom except for mine. That's not how he designed any of this. You know why? Because if there is no choice, there is no love. If you forced a young woman to get married to a young man for whatever reason, you can't really do that in this country, but just imagine a scenario somewhere, hypothetically, we could force somebody to get married and that young woman is forced to be in a relationship with that man and then go, do you love him? No, she didn't choose him. Love is not love unless there is a choice involved. And if he overrides the free will of all humanity, you and I would never know the real essence of love. And God is love. 
I'm not saying that he allowed the person to come and do that thing to you. I'm saying he gave them the ability to choose, to pursue God, to act in the right way. He gave them that ability. He set that parameter in place. And if they chose to abuse it, that is when he not only becomes your savior, he becomes your healer. He becomes your provider. He becomes your restorer. He can step in and heal everything that has ever happened to you because of the choices, the poor choices of someone else. That is the God who's in control. He can fix any broken heart. He can mend any wounded soul. We had this entire series at the beginning of the year about, uh, about stop the bleeding. He's the one who can do that for you, but your faith has to be in him, not in anything else. Nothing happens outside of his purview. Nothing happens that he can't change, that he can't creatively restore. God has never been surprised. He has never been worried. He's never been stressed. He's never been outsmarted. He's never been caught off guard. He's never been tricked. He's never been depressed. He's never been anxious. He's never been exhausted. He's never been limited. He's never sat up at night and wrung his hand and grabbed his head and thought, oh my God, I can't sleep tonight because I don't know what to do. That has never happened to him because he is supreme over everything. Isaiah 45, 12 through 13, God is talking directly to his children through his prophet. This blows my mind. It doesn't seem like it at the beginning when I just read it. I'm like, oh, cool. But it blows my mind when I found out the context of this in my study this week. Isaiah 45, 12 and 13, this is God talking. I am the one who made the earth and created people to live on it. With my hands, I stretched out the heavens. All the stars are at my command. Right there is enough of a mic drop moment. Like recognize who you're dealing with, right? Like back in my days, it was like recognize. I don't know what the cool word is today for, for people, but back then it was recognize. He's saying you better recognize who you're dealing with. But then he switches to something that I didn't really catch. He says, I will raise up Cyrus. To fulfill my righteous purpose, I will guide his actions. He will restore my city and free my captive people without seeking a reward. I am the Lord of heaven's armies, and I've spoken. <clears throat> that made me ask a question. Who is Cyrus? He's talking about Cyrus. Who is Cyrus? Cyrus was the pagan king of Persia that lived 150 years after this was recorded. So 150 years before Cyrus became the, the ruler of Persia, before he was even born, before his ancestors, many of his ancestors were even born, God calls out that this child will come into power. This is exactly what he will do and calls him by name. I don't know about you, but what that made me think of is God knows every single possibility that will ever happen in your life. And he knows every possibility and every end result of the decisions that I made and the ones I didn't make. Had I went the other way and never came to ministry school, he knows what my life would have been. If I pivoted and married somebody else, he knows what my life would have been. 
If you took that young woman home that night, guys, he knows what would have happened. Ladies, if you would have went home with that young man who gave the invitation instead of going, nah, changing your mind at the last second, he knows what would have happened to you. He knows what children would exist. He knows what your life would be. He knows what the decisions that that decisions would have triggered. He knows the end results of all of those things because he is supreme over everything. And this is just one little nugget of how he can do what he wants, when he wants, how he wants to accomplish his will and his people. Cyrus was the king of Persia and they were, he was the ruler over Israel at the time where they were in cap captivity. And for no reason and with no, no reward or no benefit to himself, Cyrus releases the children of Israel to go back to Jerusalem and begin to build. It doesn't matter if your boss is saved or not. It doesn't matter if the person who is over you and authority in your family honors God or not. If God wants them to move in a way that will open a door for you, he will nudge even the unbeliever to do what he wants because he is in that much control. If it's going to fulfill his purpose, if it's going to fulfill his plan, if it's going to bring his word to pass, it doesn't always have to come through someone who's a believer. He can navigate people and nudge them and influence them in a way where they will open a door for you, even though they don't get nothing out of it. They don't know why they're doing it. They don't know why they like you. They don't know why that you have such great favor, but they will open the door, let you go through it, close it, and yell at anybody else who asks what they let you through. God's got that much power to navigate. You are dealing with the supreme God. Not some lower little little spirit that wants to influence someone. <clears throat> Reminds me of the old funny story that I heard about this older woman who was who was um, living by herself, and she was at the towards the end of her life, but she ran out of money for food. She was near the window one day and knelt down and just prayed because it was nice outside. She just prayed and said, "God, I'm hungry. I don't have enough money to buy any food. I don't have anyone to call and ask for food. Can you please somehow?" Provide me something to eat. Next door, her her neighbor heard her. He's doing some yard work in the back work in the backyard. Heard her outside of her door, and he was an atheist, and he was hated God. And he goes, you know what? I'm going to show this old woman. So he went to the store and bought bought several bags of food and put it on her doorstep. Rang the doorbell and then ran around the corner and hid. The woman opened the door and said. Oh my God, thank you so much. There's food. God answered my prayer. Thank you, God. She began to thank God and glorify God in that moment. And then the atheist guy jumps out of the bushes and goes, ha ha. God didn't provide that for you. I heard you praying. I'm the one that heard you saying that you had no food. I wouldn't bought the, I wouldn't bought these groceries. Here's my receipt. I've been trying to tell you, old woman, there is no God. I've been trying to tell you that he's not out there. That once this life is done, it's over. He didn't do this for you. I did. And without missing a beat, the woman just closed her eyes and raised her hand and said, God, thank you again for this food. And also, thank you for making the devil pay for it. <clears throat> it doesn't matter what the scenario is. God can use the arrogant, ignorant, 
hatred of people who are his enemy to do something to provide for his kids without them even realizing that he was the one directing it the entire time. My friends, God is in, next two lines in your notes, full control. He is in full control. <clears throat> My question, and the, the reason I spent the, the first the first half or 50 or 60% of this message reminding us who God is from his word is now my question is, do you believe that? Do you believe that's who he is? Do you believe that he's in that much of control? Are you convinced? Is there a conviction or a faith in our heart that we have a relentless grip on our soul that God is in control? Does that? Do you believe that? Because when you say, I believe in God, I believe that he is in control, you are saying the God who did all that, and that's not even a tip of the iceberg for everything that he's capable of doing, all of that is who I'm putting my faith in. Not a man, not a professor, not someone who, who has wooed me with great oratory skills, not someone who has got more degrees than a thermometer to tell me this is what I should think. No, no, no. My faith is not in any human understanding. My faith is in the one who created human understanding. He's in full control. <clears throat> so with all of that firmly brought to the forefront of your mind, I want to look at two things quickly that should change in us with that reality being present. If we truly believe that everything we just said out of his word, if we just, if we truly believe what was said and presented here about God, when we say we have faith in him, we have faith in that God, then number one, you should have the faith to obey. Number one, you know, it's faith to obey. <clears throat> um, this past week, uh, was a rough day for the basketball world. And if you're not a sports person, just indulge me for a second because it's not really about sports. It's about somebody who plays sports. It's not only because the Suns are out and fired their coach and don't have half a team anymore and the Lakers are down 0-3 and LeBron is not the GOAT. I mean, sorry, that was another, <laughs> it's another thing for another day. He kind of is the GOAT, but not like that GOAT, the acronym GOAT. He's just the regular GOAT this time. I digress, sorry. <clears throat> um, but this very young, very talented, very dynamic, very explosive basketball player this week um, got caught on Instagram Live riding around with a gun in his car, flashing it around and flagging people and handling it very, very dangerously. Now, and this was only his one indiscretion, people will be like, he's a young kid. He's 21, 22 years old. He's got millions and millions of dollars he's on top of the world. Everybody knows him. You know, he's wealthy, he's celebrity status. But several weeks beforehand, he did the exact same thing. He was carrying a gun, and I'm certainly no opposition to carrying a gun, but if you watch how he's handling the gun, it's super dangerous. One of the still shots that I saw is very blurry. He's got his finger on the trigger. He's flagging people, meaning he's putting the barrel in front of other people. So if it just goes off 
or he pulls a trigger by accident or whatever, drops that thing, there's a possibility he's hurting himself. Next picture I saw is him having it just like this right beside his ear where he could have damaged himself permanently or killed himself. All the rules they teach you in concealed carry permit classes. He broke all of them in like nine seconds. It was crazy. But before this, the first time he did it and the first time he went online with all of these indiscretions that he was participating in, the commissioner of the basketball league called them in and said, hey, man, man, what are you doing? We can't, can't operate like this. I don't want this idea to be presented. I don't want to damage the brand. I don't want to give a reputation that everybody out here is acting like this. You grew up in the suburbs, man. You didn't grow up like in, in the gang lifestyle or whatever, carrying guns and throwing signs and all that kind of stuff. You didn't grow up like that. So this is very concerning. And the guy, the guy was very contrite, said he was sorry, he understood. And so here's what he lost. He lost his ability to be named to the All-NBA team. Now you might go, oh, well, so what? Well, if you're named to the All-NBA team, the next time you, your contract comes up, you can get an additional $40 million. But because he wasn't allowed to be on the NBA team like that, or the All-NBA team with that award, he lost $40 million. He had a shoe that was coming out with Nike. It's first one. And Nike said, oh, this might damage our brand. We're going to have to pause our relationship. He had another endorsement deal with Powerade. I think it's one of the, 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 the sports drinks, Powerade, I think it was. And he said, and he said, I'm going to, um, uh, uh, he, and he lost, they had to pause that. He was suspended for eight games and lost between six and $700,000. Those Instagram lives that he went on with all those indiscretions, that man lost more than $50 million. And all of us can look around and be like, bro, what are you doing? After the first time, and then he shows up and does it again, like three or four weeks later, all of us are going, bro, what are you thinking? You've been in that place before? Not the losing the $40 million or whatever, but you've been in the place where you thought you were invincible and you did whatever you thought was cool at the moment. And I didn't care who told me what to do or what I thought was right or what my parents said or what my grandmother taught me or my grandfather example for me. I threw it all out the window and said, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. That is what we call arrogance. Next sign you know, it's one of the greatest reasons for disobedience is arrogance. One of the greatest reasons for disobedience is arrogance. It's the idea that I know better. If an athlete disobeys a direct order from their coach, it could cost the team the game or even the championship. If a firefighter disobeys a direct order from a superior, it could cost them their life. If a new soldier disobeys a direct order from, from their leader, it could put the whole platoon in and danger. We've even got movies, kids' movies, that this is the script of a young, ambitious, arrogant hotshot who thought they knew everything until they learned a lesson they didn't know they needed to learn from some old guy that helped them navigate their situation and come back and win and gain the hearts of everybody. That's the theme of the movie Cars. 
the animated movie Cars. We all look at this and go, why in the world would you not listen to the people who have the wisdom, who have the experience, who have the understanding? The only reason you wouldn't follow the instruction, the only reason you wouldn't take their wisdom, the only reason you wouldn't obey is because of arrogance. <clears throat> the only way to succeed as a believer is to obey the direction of our Heavenly Father and get this even when it doesn't make sense. Nina referenced Abraham last week, but I want to read this passage one more time. Hebrews 11, 8 through 10. It was by faith that Abraham obeyed God when he called him to leave home and go to another land that God would give him as an inheritance. Pause. He's not going to that land to get his inheritance. He's going there because eventually, sometime in the future, God would give it to him. He was going there in faith before it was even his. He went without knowing where he was going. And even when he reached the land God promised him, get this, he lived there by faith, for he was like a foreigner living in tents. If God told me to pick up and go to some land because it was going to be my inheritance, I would expect when I got there a house to be waiting for me by a lake with a jet ski and a whole bunch of, you know, friends of mine next door to it. And I got an amen out of Anita for sure. She hasn't said a word for weeks. And then right here, she's like, amen. Hallelujah. Let it be, Jesus. I'm believing for it. But I believe with you. We'll be neighbors by the lake. <clears throat> I would expect that. Abraham went realized that when he got there, it wasn't given to him yet. And he couldn't even build a home for his family or a place that was permanent for his cattle. That man had to live in a tent and still he is considered the father of the faith. That man went knowing exactly who God was, remembering that he's the alpha and omega, that he is supreme over everything. And if he told me to move, dang it, I'm moving. It only didn't apply to Abraham, and so did Isaac and Jacob, who inherited the same promise. But Abraham was confidently looking forward to a city with eternal foundations, a city designed and built by God. He didn't have his faith in someone that was going to give him riches at the moment. His faith was in the one who would look at the riches and be like, that's nothing for me to give to you. I got an eternal place for you. Next on your notes, disobedience to God, disobedience to God is often faith in self rather than faith in God. Disobedience to God is actually faith in yourself and not in him. Why? I think I know better. You can't tell me how to live my life. I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to do what I think is good for me. How many times did I just say I? Is your faith in you, in your ability, in your talent, in your execution, in your education, in your degree, in your plan, or is it in the God who is supreme over everything? Do we have enough faith to obey when God says leave and when he says stay. When he says give and he, when he says withhold. When he says speak 
or when he says be silent, when he says stand, or when he says run, when he says sacrifice or build, when he says move or remain, if he says turn or forge ahead, whatever he says in whatever direction, regardless if it makes sense to me at this moment, do you have faith, a confidence in the God who is orchestrating everything, sovereign over everything, supreme over the entire existence of all this universe and every other universe and everything that was created. It is at his hand. Are you going to rely on your temporary limited sight or are you going to have faith in him and move? If we really believe God who is who he says he is, and we really have faith in him, when he nudges us in the right direction, it shouldn't be a struggle for us. It will be because we're human, but we should look at him and say, God, whatever it is, I don't get it, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make the obedient response to move. If we remember who God is, we should have the faith to obey. The last and final point, is that if we remember who God is and really believe him, then we should have the faith to endure. Faith to endure. Number two in your notes, faith to endure. Second Corinthians 4, 8 through 13, Paul talks to the believers in Corinth about what he is enduring. Not just him, but all the people in the ministry uh, crew that is with him. Here's what he says. We're pressed on every side by troubles, but we're not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We're hunted down, but never abandoned by God. We get knocked down, but we're not destroyed. Through suffering, our bodies continue to share in the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be seen in our, excuse me, in our bodies. Yes, we live under constant danger of death because we serve Jesus so that the life of Jesus will be evident in our dying bodies. So we live in the face of death, but this has resulted in an eternal life for you. But we continue to preach because we have the same kind of faith the psalmist had when he said, I believed in God, so I spoke. Paul is sitting here saying, I have pressure from every side. I am confused about why I am here in prison again. I have been hunted down like a dog. I have been knocked down and beaten relentlessly multiple times with canes. I have suffered, but on the flip side of that, I am not losing my faith in God because I remember who he is. I know that he is the one that's in control. I know that he is the one who raised Christ from the dead. I know that he is the one who heals. I know he is the one who sustains. So even though I got troubles, I'm not crushed by him. Even though I'm confused, I'm not driven to despair. Even though I'm hunted down, I know that I have not been abandoned. I know that even though I've been knocked down, I am not destroyed. And I'm going to keep opening my mouth about the gospel and the truth about Jesus Christ no matter what happens, because I have the same faith that David had when he said, I believed God, so I spoke. <clears throat> you might look at that and go, Matt, well, that was a long time ago. More 1,900 years ago when all this stuff went down with Paul, and does anybody still do that today? I want to tell you one last story as we wrap up here about something that happened six years ago. 
bombs blew up two historic Coptic Christian churches in Egypt on Palm Sunday 2017, killing nearly 50 parishioners and injuring more than 100 others. Christian people gathered together. One of the most historically ancient groups of Christians in North Africa gather there to worship God on Palm Sunday and terrorists come in through bombs in the buildings and killed 50 people and injured 100 more. Hours after the blast, amid outrage and grief, their minister, Father Bowles George, stepped before a packed church and gave a sermon that went viral. See, once all the, the bombs blew up, everybody rushed to try to help the people who were wounded and to, to gather the dead and remove them. And once that all happened, there were all these people gathering around to see what was going to happen next. And Father George stepped out and gave a message that went viral across the world. And his message was this, a message to those who would kill us. He had three points to his message. I only had two today. He had three. His point one was thank you. His point two was we love you. And his third point is we're praying for you. <clears throat> Under his first point, thank you, he thanked them because the terrorists gave the dead the honor to die as Christ died. The honor. He thanked the terrorists because they shortened the victim's journey to their heavenly home. He thanked the terrorists because they allowed the Christians to fulfill Christ's words in Luke chapter 10. Behold, I send you out as lambs among wolves. And he thanked them because the terrorist action made people mindful of their eternal destinies. And that day, there were more people gathered outside of those blown up blown apart, disfigured buildings that were now thinking about their eternity and their death gave these people who were still alive the option and the opportunity to hear God and the gospel. He said, thank you. His second point, he said, we love you. And the reason he said that is because even murderers and thieves love those who love them, but only followers of Jesus are taught to love our enemies. His third point, we're praying for you. He said, we're praying for you because he reasoned that if a terrorist could taste the love of God, even just one time, it would drive hatred from his heart. The priest was so convinced that the love of Christ, the love of Almighty God, who is supreme over everything, he was convinced. He had so much faith in God at that moment, knowing that people that he had shepherded, he had prayed for, he had visited, he had cared for, were either in the hospital or had been killed that same day. And he steps out because he had a true, authentic, authentic genuine, unshakable faith in Christ. And he said, thank you. We love you. And if you would just taste the love of Jesus, it would change what you do going forward. He was so 
convinced that it led him to deal with this tragedy and hardship in the most Christ-like way. Matt, why do we have to endure hardship? Because until you endure all the way through something with God, faith is just a theory. It's something you can talk about. Oh, I have it. But until you have walked all the way through and have the scars and let God heal you and come out on the other side until you have cried yourself to sleep, you have wept the carpet next to your bed, drenched with your tears because you have wept to God for someone that you care about and then watched him orchestrate all of it on the back end and come through in a major way until you've walked through something. Faith is Dutch's theory. Because in those moments, you go, ah, I remember what God did. I can look at you and say, hey, if you're praying for someone, keep praying because I did for a very long time and I watched God do the impossible. I got kids who are straying from the Lord. Uh, do you, have you already taught them about the Lord? Probably yes. If they're straying, talk to the Lord about your kids more than you talk to your kids about the Lord. Because you've already sown the seeds. And because you understand that his will is that all should come to repentance. And so when you go to him in faith, asking for him to move, you're asking for him to do something that he already is willing to do. Ask him to step in and then obey what he says to do and endure through it. Moms, keep praying for your kids. Fathers, keep setting a godly example for your family. Parents, keep living a life that glorifies Jesus. Christians, keep shining the light of Christ into a dark world. Last line in your notes. Since God is in control. We as his children can endure any hardship he deems necessary or permissible in our life because he is in control. <clears throat> the point today is to remind you who God is so that when he says to do something, you do it. And when you are enduring something, hardship in your life because of that obedience or not, just because you have followed his word or stood up for what is right or whatever the situation is, he has given, you need to have the faith to endure. Why? Because the God who made everything is where your faith is rooted. Not in the ability of someone to convince you or preach well or sing right or, or, or find some way to paint this beautiful picture with words to convince you to give your life to God. Oh, no, 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 no. You got to walk with him and you got to realize who you're dealing with and you got to put your trust. All of my hope, all of my trust is in him because I know who he is. So today, if you're overwhelmed, if you're buried in some emotional spot or there's a hardship that you feel like is you're in the pit and can't get out of because every time you crawl, there's just more dirt being poured on top of your head. I get it. Understand it 100% fully. 
but you will stay in that place until you begin talking about the goodness of God. You will stay there. Why? Because you're losing sight of who you serve. I'm not saying you can't be overwhelmed. I'm not saying that's wrong. I've been overwhelmed many times. Last week, I was overwhelmed. A lot of things can come and overwhelm us, but in those moments, talk. Remind yourself. Tell yourself. This flesh, no. I feel this at this moment, but I'm not giving into this because I know where my faith is planted.